Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the ongoing trial of members of the alleged sex cult Nexium. We'll give you an update. Plus, Jarrett Murphy will talk to Suraj Patel, candidate for Congress, on the heels of his debate with the incumbent Carolyn Maloney. And then, a Bay Ridge institution, Tannerine, releases another cookbook. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle, filling in for Ashley Ford, joined by producer Shereen Bargi, who was out yesterday covering the latest hearing at a Brooklyn court in the case against alleged sex cult Nexium and their members. In case you don't remember, this is the Albany-based, quote-unquote, self-help organization, which apparently moved some operations to Brooklyn and whose head, Keith Ranieri, was arrested in Mexico earlier this year on a tip that he'd been engaging in sex trafficking and sexual slavery. It has also engulfed Smallville actress Allison Mack. Welcome, Shireen. Thank you, Ross. So can you just bring us up to speed? So yesterday this was a status conference where they discussed a bail package proposed by the lawyers uh, for the alleged cult leader, Keith Ranieri. Correct. So the main thing that happened yesterday was that the $10 million bail package that was proposed by Ranieri's lawyers dismissed by the judge. This would have included that him being removed from the Metropolitan Detention Center right here in Brooklyn and moved to an apartment again in Brooklyn where he'd be watched 24-7 by armed security guards. So it would be like supervised kind of release, but they still denied it because they were worried he was a flight risk. Yeah, they said that he's a flight risk. Mm -hmm. And also the judge said that's absurd to have like armed security guards. Well, so you spoke to a couple women about why it was important that bail be denied. You have an audio recording of that conversation that we're about to play. Can you first tell us, who are Catherine Oxenberg and Tony Natalie? So Catherine Oxenberg is an actress. She's mostly famous for playing in the 1980s hit uh, soap opera Dynasty. Mm-hmm. She was there because her daughter, India Oxenberg, is one of the main people in the cult. Now, they've been estranged, even though it was Catherine Oxenberg who introduced India to Nexium in the first place. And now she's having a lot of guilt about doing that. Mm-hmm. For years, she's trying to basically re- to get India out. And um, Tony Natalie is? And Tony Natalie is Renee girlfriend of eight years. She told me that Ranieri has been stalking her and using the legal uh, system as his weapon of choice to basically just bring her to her knees. Wow. Okay, so we're going to listen to that. The reason that I came today was to make sure that the judge saw that there were people here. And yes, there is a fear because there's a lot of wealth and there's a lot of power. And the amount of money that backs him, I mean, was he trying to be El Chapo and create his own El Vanguard prison? It, it, It was ridiculous. But there was a possibility, and it would be frightening. I, t- I speak to a lot of people, and my phone's going to blow up. People are afraid that he's actually going to get out of, out, is going to get away. Yeah. And so they're waiting to hear from me that the courts did not allow him bail, and they were afraid. So what this does is allow more victims to come forward because there's a lot more that's going to come out. Claire Bronfman just purchased another private plane, which is held in the name of a trust, and we just found out that information yesterday. So I think the judge is 100% correct. I think Keith Raniere is a flight risk and that she would have taken him out of the country. There's a mention in here about Claire Bronfman, the Seagram's heiress, but she wasn't mentioned in court, and there was some sort of dancing around her. Yeah, Why? she wasn't really mentioned, but everyone knew that when they talked about a superseding indictment was coming in about four to six weeks and there would be additional char- charges filed against like other key people in Nexium, everyone knew that they were talking about Claire Bronfman. But it wasn't stated explicitly. It wasn't explicitly stated. You have another clip from Oxenberg about about the stakes and about her concern about her daughter. Can you can you tell me about that real quick? Yeah, so Frank Parlato 
uh, recently wrote that... Who's Frank Indian, Parlato again? Frank Parlato was a former employee of Nexium. He was a publicist there. And he, and he wrote recently in his blog that India Oxenberg, who is Catherine Oxenberg's daughter, runs this key section in Nexium called the delegates. And this is just like a group of people who are doing menial tasks for uh, Ranieri. And that's what I asked her. I was like, what are your thoughts on the fact that, you know, like until now, everyone kind of portrayed India Oxenberg as a victim, but now it turns out that she had a very key and very involved role in Nexium. According to Parlato. According to Parlato, yeah. Right. Who actually included screenshots of the Venmo account in which India Oxenberg is delegating tasks mm -hmm. to different people. Now, India Oxenberg was not at the court yesterday. She was not, no. She's not indicted. No, right? she's not. Is, do people expect that she might be? Frank Parlotto, uh, Parlotto certainly does. He expects her to be indicted. He actually says that after Mac, she's co-conspirator number two, and she did play a very key role. So, yeah, he definitely um, sees that coming up soon. And the, the uh, prosecutor did mention a superseding indictment in which additional charges are going to be slapped on different people. So that's mm -hmm. part of it. And she works, she's a waitress at a... At yeah, a, she's a waitress, apparently, in um, the Lower East Side. restaurant Lower East yeah. Side. And I know journalists have tried to approach her and get some information out yeah. of her, but she's been pretty stony on yeah. the subject, referring people to her lawyers. Yes, right. correct. Um, and you called Nexium also for a yes. response. What did you hear from them? Nothing. Radio silence. As of today, Nexium has suspended operations. Uh, I checked their social media accounts, and they no longer have a presence on Facebook. And on Twitter, their main official account, the last tweet was dates back to 2016. There's another clip that you have with Catherine Oxenberg where she's just talking about her fears for her daughter. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, so Catherine Oxenberg is genuinely scared for her daughter's life, and she hasn't really heard from her. Partly, I believe that she's worried that one of the reasons why her daughter is staying is because a lot of the members uh, who join Nexium have to provide collateral, and she's wondering whether her daughter wants to come out but can't, essentially, because of that collateral. So let's play that clip. Frank Paulato mentioned in, in uh, his blog that your daughter was heading a group called the Delegates. Have oh. you read that? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I really shouldn't like talk about anything specific as far as India is concerned because I, um, I'm concerned about her well-being right now. My, I love my daughter with all my heart and my daughter is not in her right mind. And that is what Keith Raniere and this Nixium cult has done to her. I wanted to ask you, Shereen, what is it about this story that interests you? I'm just fascinated by cults. What makes people to basically, like, prompt them to join cults in the first place? And also, like, what exactly is a cult? How do we define cults? I grew up watching Smallville. It was one of the shows that they showed in Iran, so I knew who Alison Mack was. And also, it's Brooklyn. You know, this is happening in our backyard, which is another point of interest. Also, I meant to ask you that. What is the Brooklyn connection? You were saying they have these sort of uh, these homes here, these houses here, where some of the quote-unquote sex slaves are being, being put up. Yeah, so in Brooklyn Heights, apparently there was this apartment where uh, some of these sex slaves uh, were put up and uh, were staying there. And actually, Alison Mack was arrested there. 
We know that for sure because I think we put that out before, and people were like, "No, she was arrested somewhere else." And no, no, they, she she was arrested. Okay, because I just yeah. don't want to get any of those more scathing comments about <laughs> our, our fact checking. Yeah. Um, no, but I know we've we've checked these facts, and they're, yes. they're accurate, or as accurate they as we know them to be. Yeah. There's another date so scheduled for when? The next status conference is scheduled for July 25th, mm -hmm. and the trial will begin on October 1st, and it will they foresee a three-month trial. And what are we looking for for our next update? You're going to be speaking with somebody, Keith Ranieri's former girlfriend? Yes. Okay. So I've been in touch with Tony Natalie, Keith Ranieri's uh, former girlfriend of eight years. We hope to get her on the show. Okay, great. We'll look forward to that. Thanks again, Shereen. Thank you. Coming up, Jarrett Murphy talks with Shiraj Patel, candidate for New York's 12th district congressional seat, which includes Greenpoint and Williamsburg. Don't go away. Less than two weeks, the first of four 2018 election days will be here. Tuesday, June 26, is New York's federal primary day. Most of the attention in the five boroughs has been focused on Staten Island, where Republican Michael Grimm is trying to take back the office Dan Donovan won after Grimm went to federal prison, and a slew of Democrats are vying for a shot at the same seat. But five other sitting members of Congress from New York City, including two whose districts cover parts of Brooklyn, also face primary challenges in 13 days. And one of those challengers is here with us today. Suraj Patel, welcome to 112BK. Thank you for having me. So what are you running for and who are you? I'm running for Congress uh, in New York's 12th congressional district. That is the uh, east side of Manhattan from the Upper East Side to the Lower East Side and all of Midtown. And then on this side of the river, Williamsburg, Greenpoint, Long Island City, and Astoria, and then Roosevelt Island. So it's a big district, one of the most diverse, dynamic districts in America, and uh, I'm running to represent it. And you are an attorney, a businessman? Yeah, my background is, uh, you know, I'm a first-generation American. Uh, my family moved to the United States about 10 years before I was born from India. And, um, you know, I was actually born in Mississippi. We, we opened up a... Uh, Tex-Mex restaurant in southern Mississippi as a family, which is super strange in 1983. An area that's known for its Tex-Mex. Yeah, exactly, by a bunch of Indians. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, um, but I grew up in Indiana, but yes, I eventually um, uh, I went to Stanford, and I moved to New York City to go to law school here at NYU. Um, so I'm a lawyer, and uh, midway through law school, I left to join the Obama campaign. Uh, so I worked for the Obama campaign for, um, you know, the 2008 campaign, traveled around the country through 23 states in seven months with the president, and then uh, again in 2012. So worked for the Obama campaigns for the White House. Um, but I teach business ethics at NYU. I have a master's in public policy uh, from Cambridge, and that's uh, kind of my uh, background right now relevant to this, which is, you know, I uh, worked for the best president of my lifetime um, or our lifetimes, and um, I've been teaching business ethics at NYU. I was alive during Gerald Ford's presidency, so I'm not sure. Uh, so why challenge Carolyn Maloney? She is, I think, running for her 14th term. You know, right. a solid Democrat, progressive Democrat. Why is she your target? Look, I don't think—well, first off, this is home for me. I've lived in the East Village for 12 years, so it's not like I you know, went around and said, all right, this is, the, this is my mark. In this case, though, um, in this case, I think that it is precisely because we don't lead— boldly, with new ideas and, and new vision, and uh, progressively, from districts like this, which have no Republican even on the ballot in November. You know, this is where we have the opportunity to boldly and intellectually lead the progressive movement from, uh, for the whole country. 
And Democrats just don't challenge each other enough. We haven't done it in so long that we have a 25-year incumbent in place where only 7 percent of the eligible voters turn out in this primary. So 93 percent of people are checked out. And I think that kind of complacency, uh, on her part, leads to apathy in the electorate. And, and you know, we need new ideas and, and new visions, especially from places like this. I just don't see the leadership. I mean, there are definitely substantive disagreements I have with Carolyn Maloney, many. And I think she's out of step with this district significantly on, on many social issues uh, and on issues of war and peace. You know, she voted for the Iraq War. And then most recently, she sided with Donald Trump to vote against the Iran deal. And that's actually the time I looked over at my brother, who I live with in the East Village, and I said, and someone should primary her, because time and again, you know, she chooses to be, you know, tough, tough on crime, tough on national security. She voted for the 1994 crime bill. And one of the big issues of this campaign is to talk about legalization of marijuana and retroactive expungement of, of uh, criminal records on marijuana charges. Because this country has 25 percent of the world's prison population, and we're only 5 percent of the world's population. I so you, you uh, looked over, your brother said someone should primary her, but in fact, two people planned to primary uh, Congresswoman mm -hmm, Maloney. Mm -hmm. One of them, you sued to get him off the ballot. Absolutely. Why? Uh, because his, you know, the Board of Elections requires us to go through this, you know, big process of collecting valid signatures. And we did, you know, we realized that, um, you know, one of the uh, people turned in significantly less signatures than were required to get on the ballot. And for whatever reason, the BOE wasn't enforcing its own rules this one time. Um, and the other opponent had, uh, the other person had significantly fraudulent signatures. Um, and it was, you know, proven, and so the BOE had to act. So you're elected to Congress in November. What's on the agenda? What, what would you say your top one or two priorities? Well, I think, you know, we started talking a lot and still do about democratic reform. Um, gerrymandering, voter suppression, and money in politics have significantly skewed our outcomes so that the representation we have and the policies we get or significantly sort of older, whiter, and more conservative than the population as a whole. 98 percent of Americans want action on gun control. We don't get it because of gerrymandering uh, and money in politics. You know, my opponent takes corporate PAC money. Um, I'm a lawyer. I'm a business ethics professor. I've been talking about this uh, and teaching, you know, uh, doing continuing legal education training um, with a company called Talks on Law, teaching people about gerrymandering and voter suppression for a couple of years now. And this is crazy to me that you are in one of the most progressive districts in America. And you accept corporate PAC money from the very same companies you regulate. Congresswoman voted with Republicans in 2013 to gut Dodd-Frank against the wishes of the Obama administration. And since then has received about $3 million from Wall Street um, for her campaigns. And I just think that this is uh, absurd. So that's for, a, for an insurgent candidate, your fundraising has been fairly successful. Absolutely. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, much of your donations, though, are from outside the state. Mm -hmm. I think only about 11 percent came from New York, 27 percent from Indiana, your state you, you yeah, were associated with. Yeah, sure. So why is that? Why is the money? Do you have a, a base here if your money is coming mainly from other places? Absolutely. And the proof of that is in the um, grassroots energy in this campaign. You know, I've got 69 interns. Uh, 25 employees on this thing, and well over 250 active volunteers. So that every weekend, we are out in all three boroughs of this district. We're not just treating this like one neighborhood, you know, which I think the congresswoman tends to favor. Uh, we're everywhere. 
And um, and we're knocking on doors and handing out things. And the average age of these people, you know, on my, on my team, I'm 34. I'm like the oldest person on the team, which is crazy. We have tapped into a, 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 an energy out there, a thirst for uh, bold, principled leadership, and and the city is looking for it. And so we have significant amounts of support here, lots of small dollar donations from here. Um, but then, yes, uh, you know, raise money from outside the district because significant numbers of, of South Asians across the city, tri-state area, and country, um, and in Long Island and stuff, want to see representation in Congress that looks like them, and in all of history, American history, when a underrepresented ethnic group was beginning to vie for political representation, mm-hmm. uh, it was able to count on the support of, and there's nothing wrong with, counting on the support of, say, the Irish for Al Smith, or, you know, and so to somehow suggest that's Wrong. I mean, like I said, the opponent once said that my opponent's getting all his money from people with the last name Patel. Well, there's 300,000 of us in it's this a country. Common name, right? Yeah. But the businesses you have are all located in Indiana, including some form relatively recently. Is New York that business unfriendly that you couldn't start them here? No, no. no. Uh, our business. So we own a hospitality company. We have hotels uh, and restaurants and things that we build and construct and sell and whatever across the entire country. In fact, very few in Indiana. Um, that's just where my parents live and, and started the company in 1989. Um, you know, hotels in Florida and places like that. Uh, New York, we have, in New Jersey, but New York, I mean, it's just a different place to construct. And, you know, construction business is one that, like, you've got to spend a lot of time knowing your subcontractors and all that. It's a difficult thing to expert. You don't just jump from place to place. It just mm-hmm. doesn't happen. Um, but back to the priorities, because I know I mentioned democratic reform. But then as the campaign has evolved... There is more and more realization, in my uh, opinion, that right now uh, immigrants are being persecuted in this country. Undocumented people are being, including just a few blocks away, uh, you know, the DA here, um, Gonzalez, was saying that it is difficult to get witnesses to show up when ICE is hanging out outside of courtrooms to deport people. And you talked about defunding ICE. And so I think the number one priority for me... You know, on an instant basis, is to defund ICE, both to to uh, as a leverage tool to say, Donald Trump, if you want to use this police force that you're using with impunity above the rule of law across all 50 states to make us less safe and then terrorize our communities, then we are going to take this tool away from you. And if you want it back, it must be significantly reformed so that it is at the borders and at at our airports and where it belongs, and you need to do something about our dreamers and all 11 million other people living in this country. And Democrats just don't use leverage well enough. But this is a everyday—and by the way, I was the first candidate in this state to call for the defunding of ICE. Long before we hear these horror stories of family separation, these raids, and all of that, this thing has been out of control for a long time. Let me ask you about the district. As you mentioned, it crosses a river and three borough borders, and there's a corner of Brooklyn that's part of the Greenpoint-Williamsburg. What are the issues particular to that area that you think you might have some influence on if you are successful? Well, I mean, the, there's significant issues facing um, New York City right now that have been neglected for too long. Transit, obviously, is uh, a key example that the story of transit and, and the MTA in New York City has been decades of sort of spending a lot but investing too little. That the L train is about—I live off the L train, so I'm personally affected by this. But the L train is about to be shut down. We've known it was going to be shut down for, for years. There's still not a final plan as to what we're going to do about it. But if people have been thinking five years ago, you know, 
we could have at least given people enough heads up of what, what was actually going to happen. So there's uncertainty around that. But not a single person in New York City's congressional delegation sits on the Transportation, Infrastructure, and Public Housing Committee in Congress. We've got, in this district, the largest public housing uh, community in the country, in Queensbridge. We've also got a significant transit problem, and there's no one out there uh, fighting for funding for NYCHA, which had its budget gutted by $3 billion since 2001. And it's a question of priorities. It's a question of hierarchy of priorities. Where on your hierarchy of priorities are the issues that directly affect your constituents every day? Why isn't somebody, why isn't the congresswoman um, electing to sit on that committee and fight for funding? That's just my last question, actually. We should mention we've invited uh, the Congresswoman Ah. We're going to try to work out getting her on the show. It may not happen. But uh, for much of her career, she's been in the minority in Congress. And that could be the case if you're elected in November, depending on how the rest of the country goes. How do you have influence as one of 435 as a freshman and as a member of the minority to accomplish some pretty bold ideas? Yeah, I mean, look, so these are uh, part and parcel of the same problem. I think, well, we're in the minority often because we don't lead. Uh, and when we did have power in 2008 and 9 and 10, as, or 9 and 10, as uh, a majority in both houses and the presidency, we didn't do enough with it. And so when we talk about Donald Trump and the Republicans as being this cataclysmic event, but they're the symptom of a long-term problem where we didn't deliver enough for people. And so I actually think that, you know, this election is very important on June 26 to maximize our chances, at least from our, our voters here, to win back the House, because we're the campaign that's engaging new people, that's getting young people and minorities and immigrants registered, and we're getting people that need that we need in November to turn out and to work on and help out an election, um, by example. So that's one thing. Suresh Patel, thank you so much. You're Democrat running for Congress in the 12th District, Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Jared, thanks, as always, for coming on the my, show today. My pleasure. So, yes, Raj Patel, what did you think? You saw the debate last night with Carolyn Maloney. Uh, you saw him today. Well, what do you think of his candidacy? I think it's a real threat to her. You know, he does have a fair amount of money, and he is getting, you know, for an insurgent candidate against a longstanding Democratic incumbent in a low turnout primary, he's getting a fair amount of press. I mean, not just us. There was a New York One debate. Mm -hmm. There have been a few articles about him. They haven't all been flattering. You know, they've been about some of the things he talked about, about his out-of-state um, donations. And we didn't get to this interview, but some of his, some of the hotels that are part of the company owned by his family have had some wage and labor issues in Indiana and elsewhere, um, which he says are, are not his decisions. They're the individual hotels of which he's only part owner. Uh -huh. um, but he is getting some press, and there's the old saying that, you know, all publicity is good publicity. So I think he has a chance, because, as I think he said, you might expect 7 percent turnout uh, in this race. And if you can bring out an activist core, right. uh, you can steal it. So Ste said, steal it honestly, I should say. Steal it honestly. Sure, of course. So he said that he had worked on the Obama campaigns, but I wonder what his progressive credentials are. And one might say, okay, those are some progressive credentials, or some might say those are sort of kind of Democrat mainstream Credentials. What do you know? Does he have? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's um, you know he's been an active tweeter and out there for a while. I mean, he's young enough that he's not going to have much of a record anyway. He mm -hmm. is running. He's running hard to her left. I mean, calling for the abolition of ICE right. is you know in some way uh, uh, could be you know, pandering on a, on a kind of emotive issue now. But that's a ex pretty extreme mm -hmm. position to take. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that his 
whether his credentials are as progressive as he claims they are, his platform certainly is pretty far left. Mm -hmm. So moving on to some other races, I mentioned I spoke with Adam Bunkadeko last week, who's challenging Yvette Clark mm -hmm. in a district in central Brooklyn, the 12th. It was an, another insurgent candidate who may not stand a whole lot of chance, but if there's low turnout and if he can really work up, work people up and get people passionate about the race, maybe he does. But he, again, is someone who doesn't have a lot of experience. Is this a trend that we're seeing, these sort of these um, neophytes coming mm -hmm. in and trying to steal legitimately <laughs> the seats from long-standing incumbents? Yeah, I think you've seen over the years, I mean, you had the uh, Obama for America, then you had the Bernie Sanders movement, um, a, an evolution of movements, particularly on the left, to train young people and get them into politics. There's, I think, a premium being put on new faces, new energy mm -hmm. as a good. And I think there probably have been parallels in the past on the right as well, Christian coalition of others. They just were about a generation ahead. And, and I think it, there's a model that is sometimes used. It typically involves a lot of money from places like ActBlue um, mm -hmm. and sometimes even the kind of the, the policy points and the presentation style is very similar. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's any central training or if it's just kind of a book everyone taps into. It's definitely happening. Um, I think, you know, if it's always better, I think, to have uh, a competition than to not. I mean, because in a one-party city, sure. there effectively is none, except in the Staten mm -hmm. Island district and these districts in November. So it's a chance for a com uh, conversation. It's a chance for, you know, a half-hour debate on New York One. That's to the good. Um, right. But, yeah, I think there is definitely a style now of people who are not homegrown candidates um, coming in and running for fairly, you know, fairly high-ranking offices. I mean, this is Congress we're talking about. Right. And is it kind of the progressive wing's Tea Party? That has been thrown around a little bit when talking about Working Families Party. But this idea of, you know, challenging Democrats from the left, mm -hmm. from the far end of the spectrum, is that... It ha shares that, that feature, that it is definitely a, a challenge from the left, and I think it is... You know, it benefits from the fact that that's where the passion of the party is. The passion of both parties is at the extremes. Right. I don't think that when it comes down to it that Working Families Party or some of these progressive groups would have quite the same scorched earth approach that the Tea Party would. Right. Tea Party people would rather a Democrat win than a bad Republican in mm. many cases. I don't think that's the case for most people on the left, but, right. but who knows. Right. Let's move on and talk about the race in southern Brooklyn, Staten Island, Grimm versus Donovan. Friendly, friendly race. Those friendly. guys like each other a lot, you can tell. Right. Well, hear. there was that allegation that Donovan was saying Grimm had put in an ethical complaint against him for trying to intervene, allegedly, in a case of his domestic partner Partner's whose son, son got arrested, got arrested right. for heroin possession. And then Grimm, to his thinking, to Donovan's thinking, was the only one who could have lodged his complaint because it was kind of an insider-ish kind of thing, which seems like a pretty low low blow. Yeah, yeah. I think the most interesting thing in that race is the Trump factor, right? I mean, everyone on the, on the Democratic side is, is talking about how, how good a job they're going to do in Washington of kicking Donald Trump in the shins. And this is a race where both candidates, even though this is New York, one would think like fairly left-leaning as Republican districts go, they're all trying to out-Trump each other and who loves Trump more. And of course, right. you know, Trump did endorse the incumbent Dan Donovan, um, and but I think the last poll still show uh, Michael Grimm with a considerable lead. Wow, considerable double digit. Uh, in the low double digits, if I'm recalling correctly. Wow. But these races are difficult to poll because of the low turnout right. and relatively small sample size. So 
Wow, that'll be incredible. And then Max Rose, who was on this show, is the putative frontrunner for the Democratic... Certainly winning the money race in right. that side, right? This is the 11th district, covers a little bit of Brooklyn, mm. all of Staten Island. It's the one that Grimm represented, and now Donovan yeah. represents. Grimm's trying to get it back. But that's just the Republican primary. Right. There's a field, I think, of six Democrats mm. running on that side. Mac Rose, the, the best known, the only one that we've talked to, right. um, but several others. And there is some feeling there, too, that Max Rose is kind of an imported candidate. At least right. that's the talking line of Democrats against him. Mm. Um, Interesting to see how that plays out. Right. So do you think there's much of a chance of the Democrats taking that seat? Or do you think whoever emerges, Donovan or Grimm, likely Grimm at this point, if the polls hold up, that he'll be too strong of a candidate because we're talking about Staten Island? I think Democrats have a better chance of uh, taking that seat now than they have in, in recent years because Donovan uh, does not have a lot of strength as an incumbent. He's you know, facing this serious challenge. He's aligning himself with Trump, generally not popular. Um, the district is actually majority Democrat. They just tend to be conservative Democrats. Mm. You might have this national wave, um, and you're going to have a Democrat, probably a Max Rose, who was a war veteran, uh, you know, hits a lot of the, the right buttons. It doesn't fail to point that out. It is true. And it's worth mentioning that, you know, as, as recently as like 2008, 2010, a Democrat represented that. Michael McMahon, mm. now the DA of Staten Island, represented that seat. So it's, you know, it's not unheard of that it would be taken by uh, by the blue side. Mm -hmm. And final thoughts, any... any uh, Anything you want to say about Cuomo-Nixon? I think it is a fascinating race. Um, I still expect that the governor will prevail. Mm -hmm. But Cynthia Nixon is getting a lot of good advice and hitting all the right buttons. Mm -hmm. um, she's certainly making it more uncomfortable for the governor right. than a man with $30 million to spend should be feeling. Uh, so they're going to compete in the primary. Mm -hmm. And then any chance, though, that she might go for a third-party run? Well, she has she... it if she wants it. So oh. they have left that option open. I think it depends a lot on how this campaign goes and if she feels like she's pushed him enough to the left, if he avoids mm. playing the bully and offending her, um, I imagine she will more or less shut that down. But she's on the ballot if she wants to be there come November, whether he beats her uh, in September or not. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Jarrett, thanks again. Thank you. See you soon. <laughs> I don't think it's a stretch to say New York City has some of the best ethnic food in the country, and Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, has some of the best Middle Eastern food in the city. Much of the credit for that, though I may be biased, is due to the woman you're about to meet, the owner of Tannerine and a James Beard Award-nominated chef, Rawia Bishara, who has just written a new cookbook co-authored by food writer and now two-time 112BK guest Sarah Zorn. I spoke with them recently about their collaboration and about the food that inspired it. Here's that conversation. Oh, by the way, the book Levant New Middle Eastern Cooking from Tannerine will be available on June 19th. So, Rawia, Sarah, thank you for joining us today, and congratulations on the new book. Could you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind it? Rawia, why don't we start with you? I had the first book called Olives, Lemon, and Zatar. And the inspiration behind Levant was the first book. It's what I felt was needed to be done after I finished from the first one, which was a trip into my childhood, the most beautiful memories in my life with my mom, mm -hmm. in my mom's kitchen. 
The second one was supposed to be, it's supposed to be my kitchen, which is Tenorin, which is my house at 89th Street in Beridge, where my kids grew up. Which is an institution. Which in is an institution right now, Tenorin. And um, I felt that time, um, but with time, that it was needed to start renewing a little bit where, you know, I had to start making some kind of uh, mixing things together from all the culture, from the part, the beautiful part of cultures in Beirage and in Brooklyn, in New York in general. Mm -hmm. It worked in Tenorine, so mm -hmm. I thought it would work in a book mm -hmm. because people love Tenorine, they would love to buy the book and cook from it. And Sarah, can you tell us about your good fortune of being involved in this project? Good fortune is right. I mean, I think that for both of us, the appeal was that I, uh, I lived for many years in Bay Ridge, around the corner uh, from the restaurant, and you can't live in Bay Ridge without Tannerine being your second home. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a food writer and have been one for 10 years and have experience in writing cookbooks, but it's very rare um, that you get to write a book about a cuisine and with a person that you already feel so intimately connected to and are, are excited about. So, Do you remember your first experience of going to Tannerine? Well, when they still had their tiny, tiny little storefront, <laughs> which is, you know, really what I think a lot of New York City at large was so excited about, because New Yorkers like to be the first to find this little hole in the wall and then be part of making it, you know, what it becomes. And so, yeah, I mean, um, Tannerine, to me, was a tiny little storefront, and you saw Rawia cooking right there, and you packed yourself into tiny little tables, and there was all of this fuss around this tiny, tiny Bay Ridge neighborhood, which is a neighborhood nobody traveled right. to. Yeah. Well, well, talk about the growth, Rawia, because now, you know, you have valet parking, and mm -hmm. people make reservations. <laughs> I make reservations. I can't get in without making a reservation. And that's such oh, wow. a terrible street to park on, yet right. you can roll up, drop off your car, walk that's in. That's right. That's right. Talk about the growth and how you've become now this large space um, that is... You see, what helped really a lot is my family, because without them and their support, without my daughter, she's my partner, without my husband being behind me on everything, because you need support. Otherwise, you will not cook with love. The whole thing about cooking and about the book is about family, togetherness. It's about putting cultures together. So we start with my own, and it did start with my own. What helped quite a lot is consistency. I really wanted it to work. When I came to Verage, people asked me, where are you from? I said, I'm Palestinian. They said, what, Pakistan? And then uh, when I went to eat, there was no good Middle Eastern food around. What I mean is home cooking. Mm. There was hummus and baba ghanoush and tabbouleh and falafel everywhere. Mm. But there was no Middle Eastern meal, real nice hearty meal that our mother used to cook for us. And that I know from my first book, I explained it, how it came about culturally. So I felt like there was a real need to tell them how good it is 
to let them know how good it is. Because I figured if they know how good it is, they're going to love it, for sure. Mm -hmm. And that's how it started. Mm -hmm. With a little place, I would cook, let's say, one stew. And then with the one stew turned into ten stews. And then we had to change this to, to something else, really fancy. Mm -hmm. So we did, let's say, the fatty and the matlubi and all these very complicated meals mm -hmm. that now, in New York Times, shows matlubi and they say it's a cake, a cauliflower cake. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we're, they're showing freaky. Freaky is the smoked wheat that nobody knew as a grain in the United States. Wow. So I show all these things in Tenerine. Mm -hmm. Every day you get introduced to something new, mm -hmm. whether it's an herb or it's a grain or it's a vegetarian meal or it's a vegan meal or it's a gluten-free meal. It's all within our culture. Mm -hmm. All what I had to do is bring it out right. you started and cook it with love. <laughs> you get freaky. Well, so right. Sarah, tell me, you know, we were talking off camera, and I've looked in Bay Ridge when I thought, okay, I want to try something different. You know, been a Tannerine a bunch. I don't want to necessarily go back there. I want to explore and see if there's something kind of like it but a little different, and you can't really find anything like it. I mean, it's definitely the best expression of Middle Eastern food as a whole. As Ravi was saying, you know, hummus and dishes like that have been sort of the gateway for Middle Eastern cooking, but very few restaurants have felt like there is a customer base to push beyond that. So I think that if you see more Middle Eastern restaurants, and obviously there's a lot of similarities in this cuisine with, like, Israeli cuisine, which is very popular. And you'll find it, like, you know, these dishes all throughout the Middle East, and there are restaurants who are pushing the envelope and doing more of these, like, native authentic dishes. But I definitely don't think there's anything out there right now like tannerine that's an equal measure, so wholly traditional and not afraid of that, but also so entirely contemporary with a very original artistic voice, which is Rawia's, and pulling in very contemporary, you know, dish, uh, ingredients and flavors. Mm -hmm. Rawia, my, my— Tell you oh, sorry, the honest truth, I have another answer for that. Mm -hmm. Um, no, there isn't any restaurant <laughs> right like answer. it. And I have to really be very frank about it, because I tried. Mm -hmm. Every new restaurant that opens, whether it is Syrian, Lebanese, Armenian, anything you want, they have good restaurants, good quality, but they specialize in certain things. What Tenorin was able to do is put all these things together. I would cook one dish from Morocco, and I will not put it on the menu until I'm 100 percent sure it is the right thing to do. And I did not do um, less for that dish. I did more for it, in fact, because I cannot claim it's mine. It's a Moroccan dish. But when we cook it in tandoorin, we cook it in tandoorin. We You find Moroccan, you find Egyptian. Like, let's say I make an Egyptian dish. Can you help me with that? What is it? The kushari. Oh, yeah. It's a street food, right? There is a place for kushari in Beirage, but the Egyptian people that come to my restaurant tell me this is different than any kushari they ever tried. Mm. So that's why, you know, what, what happens in Tanurin is I really cook with a lot of love. Mm. I really love what I do. And I'm always there to have a Greeting part guests. of what's going on in the kitchen. Sadly, we're out of time, but I would be remiss. My wife would be upset if I did not ask <laughs> no, please don't. about the beet hummus and how we can predict that Ooh. it will be on offer, because sometimes we go in and you don't have it. 
Very sad. But I guess it's a You kind call, of a... it will be in. Okay. Right. Guaranteed. Okay. Promise. And right. also, there's the recipe, and also, it's so easy. So I, know, I would, ne I I would never turn you away from tannerine, right. but the whole point is now you can make it. Awesome. You can't believe how easy it is, okay. by the way, to yes. make those four kinds of hummus we have in the book. All right. Well, great. Well, so the book is out. It'll be available June 19th. Is yes. that right? And it's yes. called Levant, a new Middle Eastern cooking from tannerine. That's right. Okay, well, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, Ashley will be back to talk about masculinity and gun violence and a reporter on the commodification of the Communist Manifesto. Still be treating for some people. Hope you can join us.